0: We're doing Proverbs this semester. Last week we looked at the first couple of verses of the book to introduce it. And uh, this week we're kind of exploring the last point we looked at last week. Last week we said, What is wisdom? This week we're beginning to look at how do you pursue it. And then after this week we'll kind of go topically through the book of Proverbs because it addresses a lot of different issues. But as we consider wisdom, I've kind of been, I mentioned this last week. Thinking back to the Saturday Night Live days when I was in high school in the 90s, and a certain skit, "Deep Thoughts" by Jack Handy, which some of y'all kind of got to learn about last week. Um, this is Saturday Night Live skit. It would just cut away after skit, and we'd just say, "And now it's time for Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy," and there'd be like a picture of a waterfall and all this kind of stuff. And <coughs> on here, on here, I found one today I enjoyed. To me, this again, this is the wisdom of the world. We're talking about wisdom. To me, it's a good idea. I think this is, there's something to this. To me, it's a good idea always to carry two sacks of something when you walk around. That way, if anybody says, hey, can you give me a hand? You can say, sorry, I got these sacks. <laughs> so, file that one away. Another good one. I think this is pertinent. It's theological. Um, this is another Jack Handy. When you die, if you get a choice between going to regular heaven or pie heaven, choose pie heaven. It might be a trick, but if it's not, mmm, boy. So, we're going to look at Proverbs one twenty. There's no such thing as a smooth transition from that to Proverbs, right? In the book of Proverbs, um, before I read Proverbs three, I actually want to read a couple of verses in Proverbs one uh, twenty three to twenty three. And the reason I say that, uh, the reason I'm reading these verses is to kind of set the tone and for you to think about actually your relationship with wisdom. Because it's personified in this text, and it says, this is what Proverbs one twenty says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks out. And this is what she says. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? But if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you and I'll make my words known to you. Wisdom is personified as someone who is screaming in the public places in the city, who's yelling at us to give us wisdom. And um, it reminds me of this past Saturday night, Elizabeth and I were sitting on the couch and I was, we had The Dark Knight on TV, Uh, it was on TNT or something that weekend, it's a great movie, and uh, at the same time Alabama was playing and incidentally beating Auburn in basketball. And of course if you're in the SEC beating your rival in basketball is a very small consolation compared to losing to them in football, but it helps a little bit, right? So I have my laptop and I have it on ESPN3.com and then I have The Dark Knight on and it takes a lot of concentration to watch Dark Knight and to watch college basketball at the same time. And so Elizabeth sits down beside me and proceeds to share something really important about our children. And uh, if you're familiar with the teacher and Charlie Brown, that's what I got out of it. Wah wah wah, 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 And then I hear this, like, you can tell when somebody's asking a question, even if you don't hear the words because of the tone. I just hear this, like, don't you think? Or what do you think? I don't even remember what she asked me. And, um, <laughs> but I was ignoring her, and that's a problem. But I was honest with her, and I just said, Elizabeth, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> I was watching The Dark Knight and college basketball, and that was really taxing. Like, that's all I can do. I'm so sorry. I say all that to say there's a lot of noise in our lives. And in and, and, and that situation, there were a lot of things to pay attention to, and I wasn't listening to the one voice that I needed to listen to. Wisdom is crying aloud to you, and there's a lot of noise in your lives. And the question for the whole semester not just tonight, not just, for the, actually even not just for the semester, but for your life, is will you be attentive to it? Will you quiet the other noises for a moment? I, we're saturated with information. I, I, this is the kind of thing you hear all the time. You get tired of hearing, like, oh, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. It's just true. We're saturated with information. Will you take time? The, the picture here is of wisdom crying out in a noisy place where there's a lot of noise. Will you take time to be attentive to it? That's a question for all of life. With that in mind, we're going to consider the path to wisdom tonight, some of the ways in which we begin to grow toward it. From Proverbs 3, the first 12 verses, but we're really going to look at verses 3 through 12, but I'll read the first two. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the the son in whom he delights. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider wisdom, it's a daunting task because we have a ton of responsibility and it's annoying to try to sit down and contemplate actions, thoughts, and words and to grow in this area of wisdom, dear Lord. But fortunately, we're not left alone. You send your spirit and your word to us, and I pray that you would attend to us now, that you would teach us, that you would change our hearts, that you would renew us and refresh us in yourself. Be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Our house, as many of y'all know, is chaotic. We have two six-year-olds and two four-year-olds. We live, it looks like just a an explosion of bows and princesses and ponies and stuffed animals all over our house and it looks like chaos to the untrained eye y'all should come to dinner in the woods and I, I know guys y'all don't think playing with little girls is cool i promise you this is the most fun you'll have come to dinner in the woods a little plug for that but our house is chaos to the to the untrained eye but the reality is it's actually quite ordered you can flourish within our house you can you can understand that you can navigate it but the first time you walk in, it's just pink and princesses and crazy screaming girls everywhere that might or might not have all their clothes on. The four-year-old and six-year-old, we're keeping it clean, all right? But, um, but there are a couple of people that can walk into our house and completely understand it. There are a couple of people we have, we, a lot of y'all have babysat for us. We love all our babysitters and they're great. But there are a couple of people who've been in and around our house for years and what that means is when they walk into the house, they don't see chaos, they actually understand it and they can navigate it and they can actually navigate it really well and, be, and flourish in it and do really well. And our children love them and we love them and they understand our house and it's amazing and they're not intimidated by it because they see the order that's actually there. And this is how they got there. There are two girls, one of them, some of you all know, one of them's here tonight, Ruth, uh, sitting with Elizabeth. Another is a girl named Tabitha who's here and they've both been with us for years for For a, and a lot during four years, and this is how they got to the point where they could walk into our house and flourish and navigate it successfully. They got to know Elizabeth that 's the foundation of wisdom that is everything that 's what i 'm trying to communicate last week tonight, and actually all throughout this semester when we talk about other topics. The way you understand how to flourish in God's world, is to know God. The way you understand our household and actually how to flourish within it is to know the one who made it, which is Elizabeth. That's why Ruth and Tabitha are amazing in our house. We love all our other babysitters. It's no slight to y'all. But that's why they understand it so well, is because they know Elizabeth so well. Wisdom, the ability to flourish within this world, comes when you understand the person who made it and who made you. Wisdom is a relational enterprise. If you get nothing else this semester, get that. It's a relationship thing. It's about knowing the person who made it all and knowing him deeply. So with that in mind, we have a couple of points tonight, but they all hang on this first point. Let me grab this. This first point is about your relationship with God. The first thing Solomon talks about in this is a new and transformed identity. And it grounds all the other points. And this is really just saying, wisdom is about how you relate to God. And so you've got to get first things first before you can begin to put into practice the other things I have to teach you. And so to begin to understand what your identity is and your relationship with God, the first question you have to answer is you have to know yourself. You have to know what your identity is currently in. And the reality is, these are big questions. They're hard to consider. But I ask you to contemplate for a moment, to do some introspection. What is the idea... What is the story? What is the truth? What is the relationship that defines you? What's that thing that defines you? The place you look, if that question is too broad and too big, the place you look is where your fears and your anxieties are, where your angers are. Those reveal what you care about the most, what defines you, what gives you value, what gives you significance, what gives you security, what gives you life. That's your identity. And so verse 3 comes in. Verses 1 and 2 really set up the whole text. They say, My son, do not forget my teaching, and let your, or, but let your hearts keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and, and peace they will add to you. Okay, verses 3 through 12 are the teaching and the commandments he's going to give you. So verse 3, first things first. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The first thing to wisdom, the very first thing, is to let steadfast love and faithfulness never forsake you. Steadfast love is this Hebrew word, you might have heard it. It's this Hebrew word called hesed. It kind of has this h at the front, hesed. And if there's a cool Hebrew word to get a tattoo of, it's this one. I'm not just saying that. It's like, it's the Hebrew word you want if you're going to get a cool one. Get it get it right here or something It would be awesome or on here, right? Cuz this is the word most often used in the Old Testament to describe how God relates to his people. Steadfast love, hesed. And what it means in its simplest terms is God is covenantly binding himself to his people with mercy and love. He is binding himself to them in mercy. And in love. And Solomon's actually using language from Deuteronomy 6 when they're given the Ten Commandments and they're told what they should do with the Ten Commandments. It says, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all of your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Solomon's evoking this language here when he says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them on your neck, around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Make the steadfast love of the Lord the thing that you are about at all times. His steadfast love for his people becomes the thing that marks you, that is written deeply into the tablet of your heart, that is the thing that defines you. It is the relationship, it is the truth, it is the hope that defines you. It is the the story that makes you who you are. The steadfast love of God has to be your identity. The way one of my friends described himself on Facebook in the About Me section, whether or not we should do this on Facebook is another story. We'll talk about that later in the semester. But one of the things he just said about me, and this is what it said, I am a baptized man. Three words. He said, you want to know about me? The most fundamental thing to who I am is I am someone washed by God. That's a perfect illustration of what Solomon's saying here. The most fundamental thing to who you are has to be the steadfast love of the Lord. His grace for you, his love for you, his mercy for you, his pursuit of you, his cleansing of you, his forgiveness for you. One who's washed by God, wisdom comes. It begins when the steadfast love and the faithfulness of the Lord is the primary idea, the thing, the relationship that marks you and shapes you. So how do we apply this? Megan Brazington, where are you, Megan? Where's Megan? Okay. She always wants to know, what am I supposed to do? Right? <laughs> this is it. This is as practical we get in our area. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, over and over and over again. This is the way Martin Luther said it. And he talks about first about the law and then the gospel. And he says this, The law is divine and holy, and let the law have its glory. But no law, ever so divine and holy, will teach me that I am justified or will give me life. I grant it will teach me that I ought to love God, my neighbor, and also to live in chastity, soberness, and patience. But it will never deliver me from sin, the devil, death, and hell. And so I must take counsel to the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, and that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me, it wills me to receive this and to believe it, and this is the truth of the gospel. and is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. And he says this, Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. You've got to preach the steadfast love of the Lord into your heart every day. And if you don't understand that that's the fundamental dynamic in your relationship with God, then you'll never make headway towards wisdom. If you don't see steadfast love as the dynamic, the thing that unites you to God, His steadfast love and His unfailing character and His unending grace, and His kindness, if you don't get that security that you have it because he forgives sin, because he redeems, because he renews, because he secures you. If you don't get that, then you'll seek to find redemption. This is what we all do. We seek to find redemption and renewal and security and all sorts of things besides him. And that's folly because what that means is we use things like work and morality and relationships and leisure to give us a sense of redemption or rest or significance or renewal or security. And it's pure folly because all those things fade and die. And so what it looks like to begin to have wisdom is for the steadfast love of the Lord to be the thing that defines you. And the way it comes to define us more and more is to, is to preach it to our, into our heart every day. And one of the things that looks like is to have an intimate relationship with Scripture because it's the story, it's a 4,000-year-old story or 6,000-year-old story, depending on the way you look at it, of God just over and over and over and over again seeking and forgiving people who are really frustrating way more frustrating than any of your roommates or parents. He does it for thousands of years. He's preaching us the gospel from beginning to the end, over and over and over again. But you've got to get, so preaching the gospel means you have an intimate relationship with scripture, with meditation, with prayer, with praise, with fellowship with God's people. But you've got to get this key distinction about the Christian disciplines, right? You don't engage the disciplines in order to get God to love you. You do it so that daily you can be renewed and refreshed in the love he already has for you. It's not to earn love. The purpose is to experience his love. And so through prayer and through praise, through worship, through fellowship with God's people, meditation, we can preach the gospel to our hearts daily. And that looks like three simple things. It means going to the law and seeing our inadequacy. It means going to the cross and seeing that Jesus dies in place for us that he's the one who dies for our sins. And some people stop there, and that's a failure to read all of scripture. The next thing to do is then go to the party. Consider the law, consider the cross, and then consider the party. I'm talking about the Lamb's Feast and the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus doesn't just cleanse us and save us at the cross and just say, I'm done, y'all figure it out from there. He's making all things new again. As practical as I get, Megan, read Revelation 21 three times a week for the rest of your life. I can't get any more practical than that. About what God's doing. About glory. About when it's all going to be made right. About when he's going to wipe away every tear. About when there's no gonna be, not going to be any more pain or death. There's not going to be any more abuse. Make that a regular part of your life. I'm not saying have your devotional so you can get right with God. You've got to hear what I'm saying. This is not talking about getting right with God. This is being renewed in the knowledge and the truth and the fact that Jesus has already done what it takes to make you right with God. To say I've got to get right with God is actually to say Jesus has not done enough. And if there's anything that RUF is passionate about above all things, it's that simple distinction. Christianity is not about you getting yourself cleaned up so that you can be acceptable. Christianity is about a God who makes you clean by getting himself dirty. He makes you acceptable. He makes you right. He makes you clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean. You're clean. And you can't reacquire guilt. Guilt. Jesus has paid for it. And the reality is, I regret to use the notebook. I can't believe I'm going to use this as an illustration, but it's perfect. We're all just like the old lady in the notebook because we continue to forget our lover's love for us, and so we need him to retell us the story of his love for us over and over and over again. And that's what wisdom begins with. That's what life begins with. That's what everything begins with. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and if you trust him, to trust him is to know that you're clean, brothers and sisters. You're clean. And that changes our relationships to authority and critique, to things and to suffering. And we'll go through these as they come up in these verses. The first thing it does is all of a sudden you have a different approach to authority. If all your identity is now built into the Lord's steadfast love for you... It changes your relationship to authority. And so he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He tells us to not lean on our own understanding, to not think that we understand better than God's word. Because to some degree, what we're all prone to do is do what Thomas Jefferson did, if you're familiar with the Jefferson Bible. He opened up scripture with a razor blade. And he read it, and as things came up that offended him or didn't fit into his worldview, with a razor blade, he would cut them out and then publish his Bible that way. It's called the Jefferson Bible. You can buy these today. We're all crafting. I'm crafting my own Little Britain Bible. The Little Britain Bible says, like, okay, you're supposed to love your wife, but there are some, certainly some exceptions to that when it's costly, when it's demanding. So that love, that wife, I'm going to kind of change that verse a little bit. Because that's costly. It that means I have to set down things I want to do and do things for her. Don't exasperate your children. Well, what if my children are exasperating me? Right? Elizabeth's crafting her own little Elizabeth Bible. Katie's crafting her own little Katie Bible. We're all cutting out little parts of Scripture that we, don't, that we find objectionable for our worldview. And what that means is you're not worshiping the one true God. You're actually worshiping an imaginary version of yourself. Because when you're cutting out the Bible according to your personality, you're just drawing a picture of yourself. You're no longer worshiping the true God. That, that, I mean, don't waste your time with the Bible if you're going to approach it that way. It's kind of the most narcissistic thing you can do. You're just like, I'm going to make an imaginary deity that looks exactly like me, and then pray to him. When the steadfast love of the Lord is what defines us, it changes our approach to authority, we sit under his word. It's a call to not, no longer lean on our understanding and to stop cutting out the passages that we don't like. The path that wisdom ends up becoming means that we become people that are under authority. In submitting to authority in all areas of our life, in all your ways, acknowledge Him and make your paths straight. The word "acknowledge" here is not the Sammy so like hit a home run, point up kind of thing. That's what we think it is, right? The word for knowledge there is also the word that's used all throughout the Old Testament for relational knowing, actually for a husband and wife knowing each other, for friends knowing each other. It's saying, know God. Be in relationship with him, and he will make your paths straight. Somebody said this. I can't remember who said it. I want to give credit where credit's due, so I'm not going to say who I think it is because I don't want to give them credit and then have somebody else say, oh, I said it. So somebody in here said this. Um, they were talking about Sinclair Ferguson, the pastor at First Pres, and he said, when you hear Sinclair Ferguson preach, you trust him because he preaches like Jesus is his friend. It was really interesting. I thought it was a great way of saying it. When you hear Sinclair Ferguson preach, he doesn't sound like he's explaining an ancient text. He sounds like he's telling you about a friend. That's what it looks like to acknowledge the Lord, to be in relationship, to be in friendship with him. And so the command to acknowledge him is really let your friendship with the king and creator come to bear in all aspects of your life, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Wisdom means that you consider and apply what he has to say about work. He has things to say about work and schoolwork. He has things to say about your relationships with your parents and with your friends, with romantic interests. He has things to say about your relationship with authority figures. It means that you consider and apply what he has to say about rest, what he has to say about leisure, what he has to say about money, what he has to say about your social life. To acknowledge the Lord is not simply to give him a shout out. To acknowledge him means that your relationship with him infects every aspect of your daily life. And that you see actually speaks into all of it. And you stop cutting out the parts you don't like. And you become a person who sits under his authority. Does the friendship of the Lord infect every area of life? More specifically, when he speaks, are you willing to listen? Wisdom means we're people that are coming under an authority. It also changes our approach to criticism. Changes our approach to authority. We stop cutting things out and crafting God the way we want Him to, and we sit under His Word, and we allow Him to speak authoritatively in our life, even when we don't like it. But in verse 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It changes our approach to criticism. The call to be not wise in your own eyes is the call to be correctable, which is one of the aspects of what it means to be humble. Are you someone who's teachable? And it's interesting that he says if you're teachable, if you don't think you know everything but instead actually are corrected often and consider what other people have to say, if you're teachable, you will experience healing and refreshment. That's the promise associated with that. If you are not wise in your own eyes, you get healing and refreshment. i can give you a perfect, there are dozens of perfect pictures about this. Our girls are artists. We, I mean, we're cutting down trees to go through all the paper we use at our house to color and paint and everything. Um, and they want to learn how to cut out hearts. And so they figured the way you cut out a heart is, you know, you draw a heart on the paper and you cut out a whole big heart. Well, college students and me can't do that very well four-year-olds and six-year-olds are horrible at it and so they're cutting out these lopsided hearts by just drawing a heart and then cutting it out and they look horrible and they know they look horrible wish we could like sweeten the deal like sweetheart your work's perfect and everything but they already know before you even get there like this is a terrible heart i hate it i'm so unhappy right (laughs) (laughs) this is what they do and elizabeth's sitting there at the table says sweetheart Sweetheart, let me show you. It's so easy. You just fold the piece of paper in half, right? And you draw half of a heart, and you cut it out. And every time you open it, even idiot guys like me can make a perfectly symmetrical heart. It's so easy, right? No, 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 Mommy. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to get it. And over and over and over again, they're deeply unhappy. They're deeply unhappy because they're wise in their own eyes. And when they finally did follow Mommy and fold the piece of paper in half, draw a half heart, and cut it out, and unfolded a perfectly symmetrical heart, you know what they experienced? Refreshment and healing. (laughs) They really did. They were happy people. They were joyful people at that point. They experienced no refreshment or no healing as long as they were wise in their own eyes. So how do you respond to correction and criticism? My default posture is one of defensiveness, right? That's most of our default postures. And the height of foolishness is really to not listen to criticism and correction because that's just another way of saying that you're wise in your own eyes. So next time someone brings correction to you, stop trying to defend yourself and consider it. I'm trying to be practical tonight. When someone brings correction or criticism, stop and consider it. Don't just react to the fact that your feelings are hurt. And of course, you see, if... Your identity and, every, and your value and your significance is in the steadfast love of the Lord. Instead of being right all the time, you actually won't get your feelings hurt. You'll be someone who's not wise in their own eyes. Because all of a sudden your identity and your significance is not in your performance and whether or not you got it right. It's in the Lord's love for you. So that means when someone criticizes you, you don't have to be threatened. You don't have to be threatened. Being not wise in your own eyes is also not just about how you receive correction and criticism. It's actually about how you give it. It means that, the way one pastor said it, Tim Keller, he says that when you offer wisdom to another, you offer it with a willingness to be forgiving and understanding. It means that when you offer wisdom, you're one who offers it gently, and you're willing to then listen and forgive and understand them because to bludgeon people with your own wisdom and criticism is also to be wise in your own eyes. When you speak into someone else's life, wisdom means you speak with a willingness and a charity that seeks to understand them. Wisdom means that critique received is no longer a threat. It's actually a gift. And wisdom means that critique given, it's no longer an attack. It's a humble observation connected to a willingness to understand and forgive. Wisdom means that critique Critique you receive is no longer a threat. You don't have to be threatened by it. If your security is in the Lord, you don't have to be threatened by it. You can consider it actually a gift. Wisdom means that critique given is no longer an attack. It's actually a humble observation connected to a willingness to forgive and understand. Wisdom changes our relationship to authority, to criticism from one another, and it changes our relationship to things, to the material world. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Why does wisdom require you to give your stuff away? Your money, your energy, your resources. And not just any of these things. Solomon uses the word first fruits, which means your first fruits are the things they gleaned first from their harvest. The best looking stuff, the best stuff. It's your best and your First. And honor and giving service to the Lord is not, to be, it's not supposed to be out of your leftovers if you have time in the week. You all should do His International. It's wonderful. It's a great way to serve people that need relationships. If you do it, don't do it because, well, oh, I've scheduled all my whole week and I can fit it in. That means it's not your first fruit. That means it's your leftover. Do it. Commit to it and do it. It means when we give that you don't give at the end of the week, at the end of the month, if I can budget it in. It actually means before you spend anywhere else, you give. Now, why does wisdom require us to be liberal with our resources? And it's not simply, it's not simply liberality or generosity. It's actually called honoring the Lord, giving weight to the Lord, showing what his, that his lordship is supreme in your life by giving him your best it's actually a demonstration of the fact that you fear the Lord and it's a demonstration of this principle the reality is you always give your best to what you care about the most you always give your best to what you care about the most this is why girlfriends rightly observe at times when the boyfriend becomes less interested and decides he wants to play FIFA for 12 more hours that week and not spend time with her and she says you never take me out anymore she's right I side with the girl on that. What the girl is recognizing is this principle. You don't give your best to me, which means you don't care about me. It could go the other way. We're not we're we're we're, we're cool like that, all right? Sometimes the girl's ditching the guy, okay? Um but it's this principle. You give your best stuff to what you care about the most. And if the beginning of wisdom is to relate to God as your Lord, as your king, as your creator, and your savior, it's, a, it's about him being the biggest deal to you. Then you will first and not last give your best in support and service to his kingdom. Are you generous with your first fruits? Do you give people in need your attention and care? Wisdom means that you understand that wealth and riches don't come from the accumulation of things, but the fullness of your barns, as it were, and the vats that are bursting with wine that he promises They're not a description of having a lot of stuff in this world, but the wealth that is the love and the favor of the Lord. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Honor the Lord with your stuff. And you'll find that Jesus was right in Matthew 4 when he says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Wisdom comes when you stop buying the lie that stuff will make you happy. The iPad 2 hasn't come out yet, so we're struggling with it. But I'm pretty sure the iPad 2 also will not make me happy. Wisdom comes when we stop buying that lie. And the way we stop buying that lie is not by saying to ourselves, I'm not connected to money and to things. It's not simply by saying it in your head and your heart. It's actually by disconnecting yourself from those things. The application to giving is not developing a giving attitude in your heart. It's giving. It means you separate yourself from those things. It means you give them to the Lord in service to his kingdom. Wisdom And the steadfast love of the Lord means it changes our relationship to authority, to criticism, to things, and lastly, to suffering. And this is the sweetest one. In James 1, James is talking about going through trials, and he closes the passage talking about trials, and he says, this is how he closes talking about trials. He says, And if you lack wisdom, ask the Lord and He will give it. He links trials and suffering with wisdom. And his point is this, and it's what... Solomon's saying here, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the Son in whom he delights. If you are in Christ, trials and suffering are not punitive. You need to stop believing they're punitive. To believe they're punitive is to believe that God punishes twice for the same sin. They're not punitive. Jesus paid for them. They're corrective. Doesn't mean they're not hard. Still difficult to bear. But they're not the disfavor of a God who's no longer pleased with you and is punishing you. They're actually the loving care of a father who's disciplining you. We discipline our children because we love them. It's the high, the least loving we ever act toward our children when we choose not to discipline them. We put our children through suffering because we love them. See, when the steadfast love of the Lord defines you, then all of a sudden, you have the wisdom to walk into suffering and not think like, I don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband because I did something wrong at this point in my life and God's punishing me. That's tyranny. To try to feel like you have to check off all these boxes to get God to give good things to you and he's just going to punish you otherwise. No, you get to walk into suffering. It doesn't mean suffering's not hard, but you see it as the place where God refines you. That he's working all things to your good. And all things to the good of my girls sometimes involve spankings. All things to your good, God working all things to your good, is going to involve trial and suffering. That's a good thing. That's the love of the Father, not the displeasure. That's his correction. That is not his punishment. The rest of the semester, we're going to be looking at different topics and consider wisdom with regard to those topics. But what you've got to see is that wisdom is first a relational enterprise. Wisdom comes not when you memorize some aphorisms, some sayings in this book. Wisdom comes when you know the person who made you and made this world. Ruth and Tabitha are amazing babysitters because they know Elizabeth who made the home in which they work. And all these aspects of the path to wisdom are preceded by knowing and experiencing richly the love and the grace and the steadfast care of the Lord. The one who held God's word in highest regard, who thought that he was perfect, but he was gently and lowly, who though he was perfect, was gently and lowly in heart, who gave of himself more than any of us will ever give, and who endured more suffering than any of us will know. Wisdom comes when you see that Jesus is actually all these things for you. Let's pray.